This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Einstein and Go Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have an hour of science for you now. So strap yourselves in, folks. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? You well? I am, actually. Very good. Yesterday, we... uh Went to the St. Kilda Spooktoberfest and did, uh, had the kids dressed up and, uh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A right, right. little bit of trick or treating. It was fun. It yeah. Was I nice think, uh, yeah. Kids are going to do that tomorrow. I think at the shopping center or something. Yeah. <laughs> something or something or other. That's good fun. It's good fun. Dr. Crystal. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're doing well. I am doing well. You're back from your little overseas junket. Yes, been in the US for trip, a couple sorry. of weeks. Yeah. Sorry, trip. Taking some um, medical technology companies from Melbourne over to uh, America to uh, seek fame and fortune overseas. Mm. That sounds very good. Well, we're going to uh, get straight into some science news and I will... um, We're in Studio 3 today, which is a bit discombobulating for for us folks. We're normally in Studio 1, so hopefully everything is working fine. I'm sure uh, Tim will run in and tell us in a moment if it is not. But uh, let's start with some science news from you, Dr. Ray. What do you got for us? Yes, well, you're right about the Studio 3 worry. I'm terrified of hitting the table because the chair's a little different to the mic. Anyway, so if there's a big thud, that was me. Um, I actually have a very cool paleobiology story uh, this this weekend about bison. Bison. And bison. And remember, as, as often you see in YouTube videos in America, don't try to pet a bison in the wild. Uh, so what we're looking at is the evolution of the European bison. So this was actually interesting research done from the University of Adelaide, where they looked at the mitochondrial DNA in 65 different fossil specimens of bison trying to nut out its evolution. Because even though bison in America and Europe are some of the largest megafauna that have survived over quite a long time through the plus, actually are a little fuzzy on where it came from. So how old are these samples that they're extracting the DNA from? So they... They say fossilized, and uh, but um, we're talking fourteen to fifty thousand years ago. Wow, it's pretty impressive to be able to get mitochondrial DNA samples out of samples that old. Yeah, I was a little surprised too. Actually, that was awesome. pretty amazing. So, um, and so what they've determined is the bison is actually the result of it's an interbreed of two bison. One of them we know now, the ancestor of cows. And the other one is a different type of bison called the steppe bison, which actually became extinct in the fossil record about 11,000 years ago. Okay. Now, here's the weird thing. So they think this hybridization of this evolution of this new species from these other two happened at about 120,000 years ago. And then over time, slowly replaced the steppe bison as the dominant bison in Europe. Bye-bye steppe bison. Yes, bye-bye steppe bison. Now, here's the cool part. It's a paleobiology work. But what they did was... They estimated this happened somewhere before 11,000 years ago, about 20,000 years ago. So what they actually did is they correlated their biology with cave paintings in France. Oh, wow. And, and so these bison look really different. And so what they've seen is through cave paintings in France dating up to f- almost 46,000 years ago, there's a period where they actually see a change in the pictures of the bison that people were painting. That is and, so cool. And, 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 and I saw the pictures in the article. The bison, like the two species are quite stylized and they're very different. So they're actually correlating the biological evolution with changes on cave paintings based on mitochondrial DNA sequencing. Hmm. I mean, that is just such a fantastic integration of science with, 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 with archaeology. I mean, yeah, it's always good when that sort of stuff all comes together, isn't it? It's, it's good nice. To, it's good to see that the art backs up the science <laughs> yeah. and the science backs up the art. Yeah. 
Alrighty, uh, Dr. Crystal, what do you got for us? Well, I was pretty excited this week to see um, uh, some research that's coming out about the around the global fight against Zika virus, <laughs> which um, is based on a piece of Australian research, um, which uh, a piece of basic Australian research um, that is continuing to have global impact, and that is around um, the use of uh, Wolbachia infected mosquitoes, because. The way that Zika virus spreads throughout the world, it's a virus, um, is, is through mosquitoes. Mm. And, um, and so the approach that's been taken is to almost fight fire with fire. Let's fight mosquitoes with more mosquitoes. In How does that work? <laughs> because you um, release mosquitoes into the wild that are unable to transmit the Zika virus. Okay. And this is based on a piece of research that came out of Australia from um, Professor Scott O'Neill's lab. Um, it's an idea that he had back in the 1980s, um, which is if you infect mosquitoes with a naturally occurring bacterium called Wolbachia. So Wolbachia mm-hmm. is a, a normal bacterium that's often found in insects, but not usually found in mosquitoes. Okay. So he, he and his lab and some very dedicated PhD students and postdocs spent decades trying to introduce this Wolbachium bacteria into the mosquitoes because when you do that, the mosquitoes who are infected with the bacterium can no longer be infected with the virus. Okay. And so, and they were actually focusing on a virus called dengue, and dengue virus, you know, is a very significant mm. public health threat. But what they found was is that these Wolbachium-infected uh, mosquitoes are also unable to transmit Zika virus. And the cool thing about this is that if you release um, a large number of these uh, '80s aegypti uh, mosquitoes um, into the wild that have, that have this Wolbachium bacteria in them, the Wolbachium bacterium naturally spreads throughout the population. So okay. if you release enough um, infected ba- mosquitoes, um, the Wolbachium bacteria spreads throughout the whole population, which means that in an area, you suddenly have a mosquito population that can't transmit disease. Okay. And this is research that's been done for the dengue virus, but because it also has an effect on Zika, um, they're now exploring this as a strategy in South America to be able to control Zika virus. Mm-hmm. And this week, there was a big announcement that... Um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust have provided $18 million to do a large-scale release of more of these mosquitoes that are um, that are resistant to um, being able to spread Zika virus in two South American cities. So they're going to do a big release in Rio de Janeiro um, in Brazil and also in a Colombian city called Medellin or however you say it if you are from Colombia and I apologise <laughs> to for anyone who, who is a resident of that fine city. Um, but the thing I love about this research is that um, is that it engages with the communities. And mm. so the, the team so the, the team led by Scott O'Neill, um, which is under the Eliminate Dengue program, did a lot of work with communities when they were releasing these mosquitoes um, uh, to combat dengue virus. And they went into schools and they did community meetings and, they, you know, they're really trying to engage what, with the community of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And now they're doing the same thing in Colombia where they're engaging school children to get involved in like mosquito hatching projects um, through their school science projects. They've also created a salsa song about how they're releasing <laughs> the mosquitoes to fight Zika. And um, and I think it's a really positive approach um, to, to science um, in communities because we've seen so much resistance to um, other approaches in this area, like, mm-hmm. for example, genetically modified mosquitoes or, or other. And I think that, that by taking this approach, by being very transparent with the communities that you're working with around what you're doing and why you're doing it, um, is really um, a fantastic way to have these 
global public health impacts. Mm. So, I mean, one of the questions I always come back to with this sort of stuff is that we are messing with the balance here. So, not all mosquitoes carry this particular difference and we are artificially imbalancing the system to protect ourselves. How do we know? I mean, I don't mean to use the terms cane toads, but how do we know what the actual broader ecological effect will be of doing this? Because yes, we win, but every decision that humanity pretty much makes at the moment is about us winning. How do we know what the broader effects of Zika not being transmitted will be on other populations, you know, not human populations, but on you know, the rest of the ecosystem? Well, I guess that you would have to say that the Zika virus is um, is an emerging virus. And mm-hmm. so it's not something that already exists that we're trying to get rid of. It's something that's emerging that we're trying to stop to emerge, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Okay. So in that respect, you're trying to um, contain something from spreading that isn't naturally there already, um, if, you, if you think about mm. it that way. I guess the other thing about the Wolbachia um uh, bacterium in the mosquitoes. It's found that it has a. It doesn't have a very. It doesn't have a severe effect on the mosquito itself. Um, and so, you know, unlike a genetically modified mosquito, um, that the the impact on the mosquito ecology um, is lesser because this bacterium is a naturally occurring bacterium in other mm-hmm. insect species. It just hasn't managed to be able to colonise mosquitoes up until this point. We kind of just helped it along in an evolutionary sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm always sort of open to, to these sorts of approaches, but I think that that broader understanding of ecology is so important. And, I think- and often when we've talked to researchers about this, they just don't have it. So hopefully in this case, I mean, given it's such a large international program, it, it is it is something that's been thought of. And I think it also reflects on the fact that this work has been evolving over decades. This mm-hmm. is an idea that was had in the 1980s, something that only came to real fruition in 2006. Right. Um, and so there's been a lot of time over the past 10 years to be able to study what the impact is of the Wolbachia bacterium in the mosquito over that time. Mm-hmm. And now it's 10 years later, we're starting to see that applied to a public health setting. So I think in a lot of ways, this is something that has been considered over decades. Oh, that's good to hear. So has, has the Dengue Project actually done test releases for limiting the dengue virus. So, so, so they, the de- they already have some studies where they've rolled out the mosquito populations, not in South America, but in other areas to see. So the Eliminate okay. Dengue program is working in Southeast Asia currently. So they've got release sites, I believe, in Vietnam and Thailand to release these Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes um, to protect against dengue. Um, there's also a project now looking at Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes to protect against malaria, um, which is also getting a lot of traction um, in some malaria endemic uh, countries, so where malaria disease happens. Um, and and so based on that evidence, um, that's you know where they've decided to extend the project into Zika. But you're right, it will it will retain it will require long term monitoring. But the good news is is that they're being funded by you know by big institutions like the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to do the research and do it properly, do it properly. and do it in a way that engages the local community. So okay. I think that if you're going to push forward with this um, intervention, that it's being done in in the most considered and scientifically robust way, mm-hmm. and not by a commercial company, it's, which, which it's, helps. It's being led by the Woolbuck Eliminate um, uh, Dengue Project which is led out of Melbourne, yeah. um, at, so Professor Scott O'Neill's at Monash University. So I think it's something that all Australians can be very proud of, that a piece of very basic mm. research, how do you get a mosquito, how do you get this bacterium to infect a mosquito? Well, who cares about that? It's like, well, you know, 20 years later, it could be saving lives. 
Well, and in, in Australia, it could be more and more of a problem as our climate shifts and things head south. Well, we've seen the mosquito plague yeah. hit Melbourne this week. I know, they're um, everywhere. You know, and there's concern about diseases like Ross River virus and yeah. Murray Valley encephalitis. These are big problems in Victoria. Mm. So the more we understand about mosquito ecology, the more we can protect people from these mosquito-borne diseases. Excellent stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us, we have Dr. William Yan. He's the Centre for Eye Research Australia's project lead and a PhD candidate. William, welcome to the studios of Triple R. Thank you, Shane. Now, you guys got some pretty good news during the week. Why don't you talk us through what happened there? Because, you know, I, I saw, especially from Dr. Lauren, who you know is on our program. Yes. She was sending me emails a mile a minute there midway through the week, pretty excited. <laughs> so so what, what happened for Siri this week? This is all very exciting. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, we flew up to Sydney to take part in the final round of the Google Impact Challenge, mm-hmm. um, where there were 10 non-for-profit organisations who pitched their ideas to Google yep. uh, for funding. And okay. we're very lucky to be chosen as one of the winners. Right. Yeah. And how much fun are we, we talking about there? So we started off with 250000 uh, mm-hmm. All the finalists were given 250000 Okay. Um, fortunately... We were lucky enough to walk away with 750,000 in the end. That's quite a difference. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, now, so this, this Google Challenge is something they put out every year, presumably, and, and a call for, is it Australia-wide? It was Australia-wide. Typically, they hold it uh, once a year in different locations around okay. the world. And um, it's very unusual for them to revisit a country. But Jacqueline Fuller, who's the director of Google Org, said that she was so impressed with the quality of ideas in 2014 when it was last held in Australia yep. that they decided to come back this oh, year. It's no surprise to us, is it? <laughs> Unless you come back every year. So what's the actual challenge? What are they asking for? Yeah, so it's a social innovation challenge. The um, the call was put out to uh, non-for-profits of uh, all different backgrounds to come up with ways to um, make the biggest change in the world to mm. really you know improve... Um, the problems that we have at the moment in the world okay. using scalable and technology-driven solutions. Okay, so now let's talk about your pitch. I mean, what did you get the 750,000 clams for? What, what are you, you going to do? Yeah, so what we've developed is a remote visual acuity testing software. Uh, it's aimed at improving access to remote and Indigenous communities in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, there are less than 1% of eye specialists working in remote areas. And uh, almost all these areas have access to the internet. So we've seen it as an excellent opportunity to um, use technology to bridge some of the health gap. Okay. Now, now talk us through what that means. I mean, are we, are we talking about people looking into, uh, you know, like a Skype-type call or, or is this something where someone takes a photo of their own eye of their, their camera? I mean, all this stuff's available now. So what, what are yes. we going to be doing? So it's, it, it's, a, it's a screening tool for visual acuity. So we're really assessing what the patient can see. All the patients need to do is log on to the online platform and um, enter their details and then watch a video instruction. Okay. And the the software uses a webcam and the internet to um, calculate the distance between them and the screen and basically calculate their visual acuity based on what they can see on the screen. Okay. And, and how do you pull out the differences between various webcams? I mean, presumably, I, I, maybe they're all built in the same factory somewhere in Southeast Asia, but they've got to all be different, presumably, to some degree. That's right. And that's, a, that's one of the significant challenges of this project. Uh, I suppose uh, the most popular webcams uh, are laptop webcams mm-hmm. these days, and they're all manufactured to a standard which we can work with. Okay. So... Uh, so that's that's what we're 
we're doing. Yeah. Right, right. So uh, it's a visual acuity test on people. Mm-hmm. But this has implications more than figuring out that people need glasses, right? What, what else can you determine based on tracking their visual acuity remotely? That's right. So visual acuity is essentially the gateway test uh, in ophthalmology. It's what we use to both triage and to um, screen patients for visual impairment. So aside from refractive errors, one of the things we look at is cataract, um, as well as uh, diabetic retinopathy and glaucoma. Because... Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, and how, how big is the scale of this problem um, in these remote and Indigenous communities? You said that less than 1% have access to um, to, to eye vision services. Um, where how What's the impact of, what's, what's the size of the problem you're solving? Uh, it's massive. Uh, <laughs> 35% of Indigenous Australians have uh, never had an eye exam before. And what we see is that um, in Indigenous Australians over 40 years old, there's almost six times the rate of blindness compared with non-Indigenous Australians. Uh, and we know that 94% of all this is preventable or curable. Mm. Yeah, that's disturbing, that number, isn't it? Mm. Now, I, I've always been of the view that an optometrist without an ophthalmoscope is like a fisherman without a hook. <laughs> um, how much can you guys do before you go to the next step? And, and what would be that next step? So you, you have this person run through the software package, mm. I assume you can collect a certain amount of information. How much can you get? And then what's, as you say, they, they don't have access readily to mm. optometry services. So what, what happens next as a result of that? Yeah, so at the moment, we're only looking at visual acuity screening. But down the track, we hope to build in other functions like uh, colour blindness testing with mm. Ishihara charts, visual field testing, Amsler grids. Uh, ultimately, when we detect cases of low vision, they'll either be referred out to regional eye health services mm-hmm. or we can set up a telemedicine consult where there'll be a consultant at the other end um, who'll ask a few questions and help narrow down what the diagnosis could be in a management plan. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately it's about understanding the scale of the problem and where the problem is in Australia yep. you know, before we can find a means to address it. So how do you see this program being rolled out? I guess it's one thing to have the technology that can solve the problem. How is it that you ensure that it's being adopted in the places where it's needed? I mean, what are the networks and ways that you'll... Is it something that people in those communities will need to know about to actively do themselves? Or will it be a sort of facilitated program of outreach into those areas? Do you know much about how it's going to be adopted? Well, phase one of what we hope to do in the next three years is a qualitative study. Uh, we need to look at what uh, the user expectations are in Australia, how to best engage Australian patients. <laughs> so ask them, it's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll do three real-world studies first, uh, one based at the Victorian INE Hospital, uh, one based in the community with elderly patients and one based in Indigenous school communities. And from there, I suppose the approach would be a running a uh, public health campaign mm. uh, using um, mainstream media, social media to to target individuals, but then also going through our higher throughput hubs, like schools, hospitals, clinics, and really engaging with uh, the demographic that we're after. Mm. Well, look, William, it's great news, and congratulations to you and the rest of the team at Syria because um, I know the money's important for this sort of research, but the accolade of winning this this sort of thing from um, from Google as well, hopefully we'll, we'll... take it far and, and get, get people to know this, some of the thing, the good work that you guys are doing. So congratulations and thank, thanks very much for coming in and chatting to us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. William Yan is from Sirius, um, 
well, from CIRA, the Centre for Eye Research Australia, and is the project lead and a PhD candidate there on what is a spectacular program that has won quite a bit of money this year from the 2016 Google Impact Challenge. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have a couple of amazing guests that have managed to find their way into the studio today. From the Flory Institute, we have Amy Heffernan and Emma Burrows. Amy, Emma, welcome to RRR. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, you've been on before, Emma. I have. So we might start with you. Just give Amy a moment to settle. Um, you don't need to settle, I know that. But I'm just, zen. You're fine. good? Yeah, you're yeah. good. Now, um, you've been involved, Amy, in, sorry, Emma, in something um, really interesting in this sort of Parkville precinct of medic, biomedical research institutes and so forth of late for women in science. Tell us a bit about what's happening there. So we're called WISP Mm -hmm. and we stand for Women in Science Parkville Precinct. So we represent uh, five organisations, over 6,000 scientists. So very quickly, the Flory, Weehigh, Peter Mac, Doherty and the Murdoch. And what we're doing is a little bit different to a lot of the women in science initiatives that are currently out there. We're banding Mm -hmm. together and through collective action and through joining forces, we hope to do something a little bit different. And in particular, we want to empower women to get into leadership positions. So that's okay. the, the thing that binds us all. So when, when you say you, you're doing something different, I mean, what sort of things are you actually doing? We'll get on to the, the competition in a moment. So the easy wins, the things that we've noticed already, have been uh, very simple, sharing policies and combining um, resources and talking and changing conversations in our institutes. So this sounds really um, fairly simple, simple, hey, but we're actually from five major research institutes who are highly competitive and we normally operate in silos. In the funding environment that we exist in at the moment, which is very, funding is scarce, it's very hard to look after your own, let alone Mm. someone across the road or just down the road. So what we're doing is is very different in that we're actually sharing resources and sharing policies. And so um, everyone, every organisation are doing different things. So we've got um, WeHi who are building a childcare centre and then other organisations have got really ambitious policies. Uh, we're not all doing the same thing, but through sharing resources and having that conversation, I think that we all will achieve something slightly different. Mm-hmm. But our main focus is really to benchmark so a lot of a lot of people are thinking that you know we we need to be doing something about women in science because we're not seeing women get to leadership positions, and, yeah, and so we need to measure what we're doing. We need to know what, what's actually working. And right, what, what's what or what's yeah. stopping the women? Because because you know, we had lunch during the week and we were talking about this and we we discussed the issue of how, how just how many women there are at the earlier career stage, you know, by proportion in these fields, and it seems quite extraordinary that. So few of them end up, you know, ending up in these leadership positions. It is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, how yeah. bad are those numbers, though? So at the PhD level, mm-hmm. um, it ranges from 60 to 70% female. Mm-hmm. So um, over half at that level. And then it trickles away. And when we get to sort of senior management level, 20%, and sometimes at the executive level, 0%. One percent. Right. So, the numbers are are not representative. If if it was an equitable uh, field, then we would be seeing equivalent numbers at the top to what mm. we see at at the PhD level. Emma, one of the most challenging questions I get asked um, when I'm talking about uh, women in leadership is, well, why? What? Why do we need to have equity or equality or representation of women in leadership? 
We're trying to find cures for some really, really devastating diseases. And the best way to do that is to think outside the box and to be diverse. So in order to be able to be the best that we possibly can, we need to include all types of brains and different mm. styles of thinking. Because if we continue operating with the status quo, we'll continue finding fairly average answers. Yeah. And those average answers to cures for cancer and for neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to help people get better. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing we've learned from nature, it's that diversity means strength. Absolutely. So, you know, we kind of have to always come back to that to me. Yeah. And, and the arguments for anything else are frankly just to be, can I say it? Bullshit. <laughs> um, now, we were we were both involved in this competition. That's why we've got Amy in here uh, today because she was the winner of the Perfect Pitch competition. So just a, a quick um, 30 seconds on that, um, Emma. What, what was that about? Congratulations, Amy. Mm. Uh, Perfect Pitch was one of the uh, professional development uh, programs that we run as part of WISP. So we do many things from grant writing to coding for uh, women in science. Perfect Pitch was designed to give people a different uh, experience in communicating their science. And what we wanted our participants to do was to think outside of the, the traditional funding schemes and to pitch their work to people ranging from someone who could be in business to government to commercialisation. And we had a two-tier process where our participants uploaded a 180-second video mm. and they were then voted based on a number of criteria, which we made obvious and transparent. And then our six finalists were put in our shark tank. And then, obviously, Shane, you were one of the judges, so you can yeah. speak to the quality of our, our participants, um, were then judged one more time for uh, their clarity, their enthusiasm, and the way in which they communicated their very complex research to a wide range of, of people in the audience. Yeah, look, it was, a, it was a great competition. There were absolutely spectacular presentations. So, Amy, you did very well to, to win because it was um, it was a day that was filled with some some really high-quality presentations from my view. I think it was, um, I mean, you would have seen that yourself. I'm sure you were nervous when you were <laughs> yes, I was. competing them. And the videos were, were so varied. Um, it was interesting to have that stage. Let's, let's talk about your research, though. You work in Alzheimer's. Um, what, what particular area are you focusing on there? Because we, I mean, I'm not going to go into getting an explanation for this particular disease because we've talked about it so much on the show. It's such a big problem. But what, what are you going after in terms of the pathway to finding a cure? So my research and the larger research group that I'm embedded in, we're particularly interested in the role of metals in neurodegenerative disease, including Alzheimer's disease. So my particular focus is on iron Mm-hmm. and the proteins that uh, that work together with iron in our bodies. Okay, so we, we need iron. That's we, right. We, we, we use iron. We, in fact, in, if you have low or too high iron, iron you're actually quite quite unwell. So what what's the issue with iron? How does it connect to Alzheimer's? So as you mentioned, iron is needed for many processes. Um, we need it to transport oxygen around our body, for example. But we know that in ageing, even in healthy ageing, iron builds up in the brain in humans, Mm -hmm. but we end up with extra iron in patients with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So something is going wrong there with the the mechanisms that are regulating iron levels in the brain. Okay. Now, I I mean, maybe this is an obvious question you've already answered long, long ago, but there are a number of people who have iron deficiencies. Is their rate of Alzheimer's lower than the rest of the community? Do we know that? Oh, I, I don't know the stats on, on that one. It just, it just seems like an obvious question that, you know, if, 
if, if this is one of the problems, then we, we have such a variation in iron levels that we could sort of look into, which is, which is interesting. It's a really, uh, it's a really tricky area because, uh, we have the blood brain barrier, which is specifically designed to keep harmful chemicals or compounds out of the brain. Mm. Uh, and this is only permeable or, or things can only cross that barrier at, at certain points in our life. And, uh, that's normally in, in early development. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of low iron levels, say in adulthood, I'm not sure um, what is actually happening with the iron levels crossing into the brain. Mm, yeah, it's tricky. So, Amy, what was it about this competition? That what, why did you enter, and um, and how did you approach this idea of having to make a, a video about your communicating this complex idea around iron and Alzheimer's? Uh, I set myself a challenge, basically. I had never entered a competition such as this before, and I thought this is this is a great chance. Uh, I'm also particularly uh, interested and involved in women in science initiatives, so it was really the perfect platform for me. Uh, I found it particularly challenging, though, because as a scientist, you get very, very focused on the details and what the details that are important to me may not be important to you or to the listeners. And so I really had to zoom out on what my research means in a broader sense. So, and of course, to then uh, package it all up neatly into mm. three minutes. That was so, yes, that was definitely, definitely a challenge. Yeah, and they came across pretty well. I mean, the one thing I loved was the the massive variation between the types of videos that that we saw. I mean, some of them looked like they were almost professionally prepared, and then there were some that looked like they'd been done in people's bedrooms while the kids were screaming <laughs> in the next room. It was the, the variation was quite good, but the you know the communication of science that came through was important. Now, you you study all of this stuff we've been talking about in worms. That's right. Why do we use worms? Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you first a bit of feedback from my friends is, uh, it's not the, the ordinary garden earthworm that we're talking about here. Right. These are a, these are a special laboratory worm. They're about one millimeter long. Uh, so the reason, or there are many reasons that we study worms. Um, and the main one is it's really, really difficult to do research in humans. We are such complex beings where if you take a worm, uh, it's, it's much more simple. These worms have been studied in, in a lot of detail. I think there have been three Nobel Prizes awarded over the mm. last uh, several decades. So we know a lot about how they function at a biological level and about their cells and proteins. And uh, much of this is actually similar to what we find in humans, you might be surprised to know. Uh, so we can look at some of these uh, cells and proteins in the worm and uh, do different experiments on a much shorter time scale and, uh, and then translate these into, into human findings. Yeah. So sit yourself down, folks, because when you get the answer to this question, it might freak you out. But how many, how many neurons do these worms have? Because my, my original guess would have been three. Uh, yes, Emma and I were just talking about this. It's 302. 302. And, yes. and, and are they of similar complexity to what we find in the human brain? I mean, you're, you're looking at the, the brain matter, essentially, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're comparing what's going on in the worm to what's going on in our brains. So is obviously the complexity is enough to be able to do that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in my research, we're using the worms as a model of ageing. So we're particularly interested in um, how we can extend their lifespan or shorten it and then how that links to diseases in human that occurs uh, as we age, things like dementia. Uh, but 
as I said, one of the, the brilliant things about these worms is they're complex enough to simulate a human brain, uh, but not too complex that things become just too difficult for us to understand. I do remember a quote, which is something like, if the human brain was simple enough to understand, we'd be so simple we wouldn't understand it. So I guess having models like <laughs> this are very important. And, um, and, and what, are, what, are, what, what findings um, most excite you about your research today? So I'll say that I'm very new to the worm world and even to uh, dementia research. I've only been in this area for less than six months. So I'm still very much in the preliminary stages. Uh, but so far, I just think it's quite miraculous to be able to take uh, something that you can grow in a Petri dish on the bench and we can look at it at uh, such a, a small scale level. We can look at individual cells, individual proteins. We can look at individual parts of those proteins. And then all of this translates back to human disease. So I think that's really quite remarkable if you just stop and think about it. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think you know we hear so much about mouse models and and you know similar things here here on the show, but we don't hear as much about the worm models. And I think that especially given you know people imagine these things as you know ten centimeters long and think how can you possibly use something that small? But these aren't those ones. These are the tiny little brothers of, um, of those. Yeah, these are even smaller really, again, really one small. millimeter. So how do you go about pulling the information out of the worm? I mean, I don't want to hear about it, blenders or anything, but you know, how do you actually examine that part of such a small, small creature? I mean, you, you hear about people having trouble doing it on something as small as a mouse, but this is tiny. These things are really small. So with worms, because they are so much smaller, a lot of the work is done on the whole worm. Mm -hmm. So in a mouse, you might be able to look at the brain or even a particular part of the brain, whereas you can imagine if we have a, a worm that's one millimetre long, we can't really take its brain out. So a lot of the research is done on the whole um, the whole worm. But uh, my, so my background is in chemistry and there is just some, fan, there have been some fantastic advances in, uh, in technology that allow us to look at single atoms. Mm, yeah, indeed. Uh, now, Amy, we're going to let you go in a second. So I think um, the last question is what, what's next? Um, you know, you've won this competition. Are you going to continue sort of pursuing this sort of activity or are you you're heading back to the bench and hiding, hiding underneath for a while to get away from the limelight? Definitely not hiding. Uh, the future of science is really we need to get it out there to the public. Uh, science is valuable and, and we need people to know about it. So mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to keep getting it out there. Sounds good. Well, congratulations again on, on winning that particular competition. It was, it was really a thrill to be there. And I think, Dr. Crystal, you were one of the video judges as well, weren't you? For the competition. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. Um, there was a lot, there was a lot of people, but, well done and uh, keep up the good work and we will um, we'll maybe talk to you in a few years when you've solved the Alzheimer's problem. Uh, thank you very much. And Emma, thanks so much for coming in and telling us all about WISP and I hope it does keep going well. Sounds like a great program and thank one you. that we need. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. It's the final few moments of Einstein and Gogo, but uh, we're going to fill it up with another guest. We have Dr. Daniel Fernandez-Ruz in the studio. Daniel, you're from the Doherty Institute. Thanks so yeah. much for coming in and chatting to us. Are you well? Thank you very much. Now, you're obviously, uh, you've got a great accent there. Where Have you come recently to the Doherty? Uh, well, I came to Australia eight years ago. I'm originally from Spain. Yeah. Uh, I've been in the Doherty since uh, the 
uh, building was hoping right, a couple yeah, of years ago. Yeah, a couple yeah. Of years ago. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, you've been working on um, malaria, mm-hmm. um, in particular how the parasites interact with the liver. So tell yeah. us a bit about what does actually occur there because I, I think people are somewhat aware of malaria as this terrible disease and these parasites get into the body. But what goes on in the liver itself? Yeah, so... When uh, one is infected with malaria, it's usually mosquitoes that infect, um, uh, that tra- transmit the infection. Mm-hmm. The parasites uh, first go to the liver and they develop there for a few days, um, about a week actually in humans. And um, then from there they go to the blood uh, where they infect red blood cells and they cause the typical symptoms of the disease. Yeah, so right. uh, the liver stage of the infection is asymptomatic. Okay. okay. Uh, but it's necessary for the parasites. They and, need to go through the liver. And why do they do that? I mean, what's special about the liver? What do they do there? Uh, it's probably an evolutionary uh, thing, uh, probably from where the parasites come from, from the original parasites that, uh, you know, infected probably other types of animals mm-hmm. millions of years ago. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So now, of course, once they're in the blood, they, they, you know, we get a lot of them and that's, mm-hmm. that's the really problematic stage. So you're working on stopping them before or during the liver phase? During the liver during phase. During the liver phase. Yeah. So how do you go about that? Um, so it's difficult. Um, parasite, malaria parasites have been with us for millions of years. Or, mm. uh, so they have developed very, uh, refined strategies to uh, avoid our uh, immune responses. Um, So the main difficulty of fighting the parasites in the liver is that uh, they stay there for a short period of time. Um, So the immune response against them has to be very quick. Uh, And it's only a few parasites, actually, that infect uh, the hepatocytes. And the liver is a big organ. So it has um, uh, millions of uh, hepatocytes of the Mm. the building Mm. blocks of of the liver. And... um, the parasites are only probably less than 100 that are infected, injected by the mosquito into, okay. the, into the host. So finding those 100 parasites amongst those billions of, of hepatocytes is very hard. Yeah. And every single one of those uh, parasites has to be eliminated during the liver stage uh, in order to have efficient protection. Uh, otherwise, like one single parasite that is able to complete the liver stage will go to the blood and cause uh, the, the full disease. And the immune mechanisms that are required for protecting against the blood stage parasites are completely different from those in the liver. Mm. So um, I always think it sounds like that, um, you know, when you see that, that sort of that war footage of soldiers running up the beach and then kind of recamping once they get ashore. <laughs> yeah. I always think that those malaria parasites to get injected by the mosquito, you know, they've got to make it to the liver, if you like, where they can then kind of regroup before yeah. they then launch their next attack on the blood. And, so, and, they, yeah. and that's where they kind of use that that staging ground in the liver to really kind of multiply up and strengthen their numbers before they go on the next assault of the body. And so, I mean, when you think about that, does that mean, I've never really thought about this because I thought if you get bitten by the mosquito and you, you get the malaria parasite, that's it, you know. But, but it, it, presumably it matters where you get bitten. Is that, or is it, is there enough just to go around? I mean, not really. So, so it doesn't matter where you're bitten, some of them will get to the liver. Exactly. Parasites are very good to find a way to the blood. Like, they're injected in the skin, the mosquito bite. And then uh, the stage of parasites that is injected in the host uh, is uh, mobile. Like, uh, it can, it looks like a little worm. Uh, So, uh, it cradles a bit and finds the uh, blood vessels. And once, 
they find uh, they get to the blood, they quickly make their way to the liver. Yeah, because one of the jobs of the liver is to filter the blood. So everything kind of ends up going through the liver at some point. And so during this entire period prior, prior and during the the liver infection, uh, our immune system is like, what's going on? Nothing. Doesn't it? Doesn't really. It does. It it tries to do something, uh, but it's not fast enough. Oh, okay. Um, So we have a a type of immune cells, it's called the cytotoxic T cells or CD8 T cells, Mm -hmm. that are uh, the part of the immune system in charge of killing intracellular parasites. And when the uh, parasites invade the liver cells, they reside inside the cells, they hide inside the hepatocytes. Um, So the CD8 T cells, the cytotoxic T cells, have the capacity to kill those uh, parasites inside liver cells. But because there are so many hepatocytes to check in only a week, right. uh, they don't manage to, to do it on time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's quite hard to get, uh, it's, it's thought it's impossible to get immunity yeah. against the liver stage. Yeah. Well, I think even, even the best immunity, I mean, when you, when you say you only need one mm-hmm. in the liver, I mean, even even if your immune system's ninety nine percent efficient at doing this, uh, it may not work. <laughs> but yeah, we think we have achieved that with our vaccine. Yeah, to get that to eliminate hundred percent of all those parasites. Right. So now, now let's 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 talk about that. I mean, what, so how do you go after things in the liver? I mean, how do you deal with it in the liver? So yeah, uh, the. The thought before our work was that, well, CD80 cells can protect against uh, liver stage parasites, but you need so many mm-hmm. and they are so hard to generate. I mean, you could generate them with standard vaccination, but um, you wouldn't be able to keep high enough numbers over time to keep people protected and then the protection would wane very quickly. Okay. Um, so um, the novel idea of our work is that there is a newly defined type of uh, memory uh, CD8 T cells, which is a tissue resident memory cells. So uh, traditionally, like uh, memory T cells were thought to just recirculate uh, through the body in the search for path- pathogens. And when there was an infection somewhere, for example, in the liver, they would be called by inflammation to the site mm-hmm. of infection and they would go and, and kill the, the invading pathogen. But as I said, that's not fast enough for malaria. But so tissue resident memory cells don't recirculate. They form uh, in in an organ uh, of the body after infection or after uh, vaccination, and they stay there. And the advantage they provide is that they are much faster. They they are already in a place where they are needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, uh, in the liver. So uh, they are able to provide a much faster response, and we have uh, seen that they are actually capable of uh, killing those hundred percent of parasites, those hundred parasites in, uh, you know, in the billion hepatocytes on time before they make their way to the blood. So n- not not seeing the skyrocketers and so forth yet. I mean, this sounds to me like the the solution. I mean, I mean, what what is not worked out yet? I mean, because if you're if you're saying that. This, there's a liver phase that's crucial to malaria actually, you know, really causing problems with the body. And you've got a, essentially a vaccine that protects the liver from this process. How can the malaria continue at that point in the body? Uh, well, if we manage to apply this vaccine to, to humans, mm-hmm. if we manage to make it work in the same way it works for mice. Yep. It could be, uh, it could be the solution. Um, the problem is, well, we still need to do a lot of work to get mm. to that stage. Yeah, sure. Um, there are certain, uh, things that we need to, to find, uh, suitable antigens that uh, we have used, uh, antigens from mouse malaria parasites for our vaccine. We need to find equivalent antigens for the humans, human parasites. Mm. Um, 
we need to uh, be able to find a, a safe way to deliver the vaccine and generate similar numbers of those tissue resident memory cells in the liver. There are lots of challenges yeah. still that we need to. But, but I mean, so. this is this is amazing work. I mean, it's you know, I haven't heard anyone else talk about the same sort of uh, efficacy of of any vaccine with m- malaria as yet. I mean, one hundred percent. Even though it's in the mouse model, I mean, mm-hmm. are there other similar vaccines with similar e- efficacy in mouse models, or is this the only one? Uh, well, the vaccine that is now Consider the gold standard of uh, malaria vaccination that has been first uh, developed in mice and then uh, currently uh, trialed in, in humans. Uh, it's uh, irradiated parasites. Mm-hmm. It gives some degree of protection. Actually, we started our work looking at uh, mice vaccinated with, uh, with that uh, vaccine. Okay. And we saw that uh, there were some uh, tissue resident memory cells in the liver being formed, but not many. Mm-hmm. So that's when we decided, knowing that those cells uh, were, could be important for protection, we decided to um, design a way to uh, maximize the number of tissue resident memory cells generated after vaccination, which is in contrast to traditional vaccination, which just uh, is about in expanding the numbers of those immune mm-hmm. cells. So you mentioned delivery as a challenge. Mm-hmm. Is it easy to get the vaccine to drive resident cells in just the liver in mice, or does it happen everywhere, or is that part of the well, challenge? What we had to do for that, for example, as I said, the vaccination with irradiated sporocytes, irradiated parasites, um, generates a lot of circulating cells and not many liver resident cells. And there is some protection. Actually, when you remove the liver resident cells from those vaccinated mice, you lose protection. So it's, it's the liver resident cells that uh, provide the protection. So in order to maximize their numbers, um, we had to use a specific adjuvant. Uh, for the, the vaccine that we knew would induce some inflammation in the liver. Uh, we are still studying the mechanisms of by, by which it works, but it would help drug the, um, the CD8 T cells that are being primed in other parts of the body, in the spleen mainly, that's the main, main place where the priming takes place, to the liver. And that's, that's our first part of, of the vaccine. Like Our vaccination is uh, delivered in two uh, shots. The first one is uh, the expansion of those malaria-specific CD8 T-cells in the spleen and then using this adjuvant to help drag them to the liver. And then the second step that is also very important is we used um, a virus uh, that can only infect the liver. Um, And that maximizes, with that we put the malaria-specific antigen in the liver, and that helped uh, ex- the expansion of those cells uh, or the conversion of those CD80 cells that were formed in the spleen into the liver resident cells in the liver. Mm. It's fascinating stuff, Pretty Daniel. Um, good luck with this work because, I mean, this is a, you know, I don't need to tell you, but this Thank is you. a huge monstrous problem around the world. And if we can get to a point where we can actually vaccinate against the spread of this particular disease, that will be extraordinary. So uh, well done on this first stage and, and let's hope that it continues with uh, similar success. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Daniel Fernandez-Ruz is from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. We're pretty much out of time. Thank you. You two for coming in, Dr. Crystal, Dr. Ray, you well? It was fun. fun. Yep. Big weekend planned. It's always great to hear how Melbourne science can have such global impact. I'm I'm so impressed with the with the quality of people that we we get through our studio. Yeah, we're very lucky actually. I mean, to to be honest, uh, the the quantity of guests we've had this year. I think uh, Daniel, just for your information, I think you're our 104th guest for 2017. (laughs) Not that I'm keeping count, (laughs) but we do. Well, you know, it's an easy list in Excel. Um, But it's fantastic to know that all these world changing discoveries are happening right in our backyard. 
yeah, it's, it's nice stuff. We will have, I'm hoping to have um, Lisa Randall, the uh, Harvard physicist, on in a few weeks' time. We're trying to work that out. We, our, uh, our late night calendars haven't quite overlapped as yet, but I'm sure they will. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right, Dr. Crystal. Most, the vast majority of our guests are local, which is fantastic and they're great people. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to us again this week and we'll be back again next week to give you more science. Have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.